Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Considering this theme of Christ and his kingship. Many of you have seen charismatic leaders or read about charismatic leaders who have deceived entire nations into following them. They've stirred up support to enter into unjust wars. They've tortured and slaughtered innocent people, oftentimes their own citizens, in order to extend their wealth and power. History is, is full of leaders of that sort. We could really just almost throw a dart and find one to give you as an example. But the king of kings was radically different. Rather than earning wealth and power, the second person of the Trinity was willing to empty himself of his heavenly prerogatives. He humbled himself, taking on flesh and coming in the likeness of man. And he did it at a time when his family had to flee for safety from one of the most notorious examples of evil, namely King Herod the Great. Rather than forcing his way into the limelight, clamoring for attention, Jesus remained in relative obscurity for most of his life and even his ministry. Right? When others wanted to, to tell everyone about him, he said, be quiet. Right? His, his, he knew that as soon as things began to be shared more broadly, that it was the end of his ministry. So the knowledge of his identity took a drastic turn in this passage that we'll look at this morning. Many will declare him to be the Messiah, but again, their expectations of what he would do were significantly misinformed. They will acknowledge Jesus to be the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, which is true. Everything they, they shout and, and share and everything they do and how they treat him in this triumphal entry is, is true, but a week later... He'll be rejected and condemned. And it's likely that there were many in, the, in both crowds. Right? It doesn't say, it doesn't suggest that the crowds were the same or identical, but both crowds were from Jerusalem. It was people who went out and, and celebrated in these kinds of settings. So it would make sense that at least some of them were at the triumphal entry as well as those at his trial who were shouting for his crucifixion. What we find instead of a cruel exercise of power is that Jesus submitted himself to the excruciating torture and death of the Roman cross. And so between this week and next Sunday, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, I do encourage you in your homes and personally to, to read through uh, the, the accounts in the Gospels of the death of Christ. Um, Matthew, as he's writing here, Matthew was a Jew writing to fellow Jews with the purpose of convincing them that Jesus was the Messiah. He makes it clear throughout the gospel that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. So he's frequently quoting from the Old Testament. One of the ways this impacts Matthew's gospel is these illusions that show Jesus is not acting arbitrarily but that he's come to, make, to fulfill something. He's come to fulfill a mission that he voluntarily took upon himself. 
So he has a redemptive purpose behind his actions. Another feature of Matthew's gospel is it highlights his royalty or his kingly role as the Messiah. That title of Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah that means anointed one. So Jesus is now entering his final week, and he knows it. In terms of redemptive history, everything leads up to or points back to this week. There was absolutely no more significant time in history. Those who declare Jesus as Messiah must know the implications of making that declaration. And what we'll find in this passage is that many didn't seem to know what they were saying in reality. And, and, and we find ourselves in that same setting sometimes, don't we, in the church? We can sing about these things easily enough. We can take a few hours out of our morning to attend church or to, as they did, attend a festival, a feast, a parade. For some, church has become little more than an annual pilgrimage made around this time every year. But those who declare Jesus as Messiah must be willing to follow him as their king. That's the main point I want to get across this morning. And that implies that they have been subdued by him and have submitted themselves to his sovereign rule. So let's ask the Lord for his grace and help to understand it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And every time we open it, we we recognize that you are speaking. And Lord, if we don't hear it, it's because our hearts are not right, that we have not adequately prepared to listen. So Lord, even now, we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, that you would soften our hearts to respond in obedience, that we would, Lord, be doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, we recognize that every time your word is open, you are at work. We pray that you're drawing us to yourself and not hardening our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would do that work that only you can do, and that you would receive the glory and praise in doing so. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred 
was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline is the king's preparation. Verses 1 through 7, the king's preparation. The passage opens with some instruction from Jesus to his disciples. As he's drawing near to Jerusalem, he's passing over, uh, probably, most likely, near the Mount of Olives, in a place called Bethphage. He can see the temple just a few miles in the distance. In fact, if you you look up Jerusalem and, and look up pictures of Jerusalem, most of them, or a lot of them, come from this very angle. Looking down from the Mount of Olives a few miles off in the distance, you can see this incredible landscape And so Jesus and those following with him at this point are a few miles off in the distance. He instructs two of his disciples to get the donkey and colt, and he tells them where to find them and what to say if someone asks them anything. Now, this does seem to be related to the rite of requisitioning. That was the practice by kings and even some Jewish rabbi. So Jesus probably made arrangements during the few days. John tells us that he had already been a few days in Bethany, and so probably made arrangements for this encounter and borrowed the animals. And so this password, the Lord needs them, was given for the exchange when Jesus was ready to enter Jerusalem. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and it reveals his identity and purpose. Matthew breaks up Jesus' instruction to the disciples and their obedience with this explicit reference to the Old Testament, as he's oftentimes doing, interjecting his narrative with a a recognition. He wants his readers to understand what Jesus is doing is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. So again, he makes Jesus' messianic identity explicit by quoting quoting this instruction that fulfills Zechariah 9.9 a section of prophecy that promises Israel's liberation, which we read earlier. So why a donkey? Well, of course, it's mentioned in Zechariah 9.9 that it would be a donkey. Some think, well, you know, he should be on a, a horse if he's king. On a donkey, is that implying that he's, he's gone down to this, um, you know, this lowly animal? Something like, driving in a a Yugo instead of a Mercedes or anything else, a BMW, whatever, whatever else you'd like to replace that with. Donkeys were associated with royalty. They were associated with wealth. And Judges, we see this multiple times. Judges 10, 4, Judges 12, 14. Social elites traveled on donkeys at this time. They were considered beasts of burden. They were used for transporting luggage uh, or those who had had difficulty walking would procure these. But after walking for three years, it's, it's clear Jesus didn't suddenly need a donkey to make it the last two miles of his journey. All right, this was all intended to fulfill the messianic promise. And so the crowd of, of pilgrims may have recalled this triumphant return of King David. 
after he fled Absalom, he, it says he's right around this same region. He's ascending the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 15.30. And get this, David is also weeping, which you know Jesus does as well at this time from Luke 19.41. We'll come back to that passage. But King David entered riding upon a donkey. In fact, it says Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met David with these donkeys and several other gifts. And he says the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. So it's a recognition of his authority, of his royalty. And the primary reference here seems to be this distinction between donkeys that are ridden by kings in times of peace as opposed to the war horse. Jesus was indeed the king, but he didn't represent the warrior king, at least not in his first coming. Not in the way they were anticipating. He does defeat our greatest enemy in his first coming on the cross. That's sin and death. But it's not until his second coming that he will come to establish peace on earth in that same, in in that full uh, way. So the humble king is mounted on a donkey, and it's contrasted in the very next verse, in Zechariah 9.10, which we read earlier. I will cut off, so it's just talked about him coming in as a, a humble, mounted on a donkey, and the next verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so that's the contrast. He came, in, he came to establish peace, not to bring war. And his disciples, it says in verses 6 and 7, obeyed him. They, uh, which means that the, the donkey and the colt's owner even obeyed the Lord's command to, to hand them over. They place their cloaks upon the backs of the donkey and, and colt. And this, this seems to be actually garments probably more to recognize his royalty. So garments, probably purple fabric that's placed upon the donkey and colt. And then Jesus sits upon those, the, the garments. Um, maybe as you're reading it, you're like, you're trying to picture Jesus somehow straddling both a donkey and and a colt at the same time like a circus performer you know riding upon into jerusalem that's that's not the picture here uh, it, it, if you read and compare the other uh, the other gospels the parallel gospel accounts of this we know he's only riding upon the colt but the colt's mother was probably brought with the the colt to to make to make sure that the colt stayed calm this is the first time that someone was riding upon it Again, you can compare this with the other gospel accounts. We won't do that this morning. But the highlight of this passage is the recognition that Christ had come to fulfill the redemptive purposes of the Old Testament that none of the previous prophets, priests, and kings could accomplish. Jesus came in humility, but this is not necessarily implied by the donkey. It's not as if Jesus... Right was, was just taking this, this lowly animal to, to depict his humility. No, his choice of a donkey was prophetic fulfillment that he was coming in peace. It symbolized his kingly authority as well as his peaceful mission. But it does say that Jesus is humble. 
And that is true. Jesus is the one who is called meek in Matthew 5, verse 5. He is called gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine. And so it's Jesus who is humble and lowly, not the cult. The pinnacle of Jesus' humility is found in his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. So the triumphal entry of this king quickly led to the humiliating death of a criminal. And here's the thing, Jesus knew that was the case. He knew that his entrance into Jerusalem was effectively the beginning of the end of his ministry. There was nothing uncertain or hesitant about his decision. He was in complete control. He's even orchestrating and organizing this entrance precisely for this purpose. And so the king we serve is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. The decisions he made could not have been more thoughtfully calculated. He took the necessary steps which led to the ultimate sacrifice. And it's not that it was so easy for him to do because we see his pain in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal. There's nothing reckless about his decision, though. but it did set up an irreversible chain of events that led to his death on a cross. So you need to ask yourselves, have you humbled yourself before this king? Have you yielded your life to the king of kings? This is the kind of king that we should be grateful to follow. When we submit to him, we are protected by a leader who ultimately triumphed through sacrifice. Unfortunately, that was not on the minds of those who were about to receive him with joyous praise as he comes into the the city. And so we'll look at this next section, verses 8 through 11, the king's reception. Having considered the king's preparation in verses 1 through 7, we now consider the king's reception in verses 8 through 11. Let me just reread those verses again. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So crowds had gathered to properly usher Jesus into the city. And it says most of them laid cloaks on the ground as they did when the people reacted to the news that Elisha had anointed Jehu to be king over Israel. In 2 Kings 9.13, they do the same thing as the king is entering into the city. They lay cloaks down, kind of creating this, if you will, like a red carpet for the king. Others cut down palm branches, which symbolize victory. See that in Revelation 7, 9, that symbolism, that imagery. And they spread those palm branches along the road or or fanned them as he went by. Now, there were people before him and after him, it says, shouting praises to their Messiah. 
During Passover season, Jerusalem's population increased drastically, dramatically. Some suggest two to four times or even more. Their, their average population, the city would have become so, um, so filled with, with people that it was incapable of accommodating all of the visitors. And so people would have to set up camp outside of the city. And so as Jesus and his entourage is traveling from the Mount of Olives, they're, they're actually meandering through these tent, these, these campsites, these campgrounds uh, that have just been set up to celebrate Passover. Now, Jesus is, is, is traveling through, and surely as he's doing so, this group begins to grow. And more and more are saying, Who, who's following this man? Who is this man? What's going on here? They mention who he is, that he's the Messiah, and, a, and, the, and the crowd grows larger and larger. Right, so these are people beginning to follow him outside of the, the city. And then it says there were people before him. And we don't know precisely this, but it's, it seems like some are coming out from the city of Jerusalem to meet him. Just like they would any dignitary that's entering into the city, they go out of the city to meet him and then to usher him in. Again, sort of recognizing that, that some, something, someone very important is entering into the city and we want to go out and, and usher him into our midst. So the crowds before him coming out of Jerusalem, you can see that in John chapter 12, verse 13. It's typical fashion to usher into the city a, a visiting dignitary. Thousands of Galileans would be on the same route, making their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so these are the bulk following him now. Now this is supported by information we gain from John that Jesus had, had stayed in Bethany. And as news spread, there was anticipation for this entrance into Jerusalem. They were eager to declare one of their own as Messiah. And with the increasing excitement of the crowd, it was all the more important that Jesus show he had come in peace. He was not about to lead a revolt against Rome. But as the son of David, they were acknowledging Jesus as their true king. And yet we know that their view of Christ was wholly inadequate. The crowd shouts, Hosanna, which literally means save us. You can read that in Psalm 118, 25 through 26, but they're not aware precisely how that must take place, right? how they would be saved. Psalm 118 is the, the final halal psalm of praise. This is, these are psalms from 113 to 118 that during all of these feasts, the, the gatherers would have been singing these throughout the week, right? gathering together, singing these psalms, very, very familiar as this is quoted here by Matthew. But Psalm 118 was typically sung while the pilgrims ascended the, the steps of the Temple Mount. So they were naturally prepared to sing the psalm at this time. It includes the familiar line about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the, the cornerstone. And now the, the crowd anticipates the fulfillment of that psalm but they didn't realize that it was the Messiah himself who was about to be rejected. 
As people in the city were stirred up by all the commotion, they asked about Jesus. There's an interesting parallel here with all Jerusalem being troubled by the arrival of the, the Magi. You go back to chapter 2, verse 3, when the Magi come into Jerusalem, they're, uh, it says that they're troubled by the arrival. And, and, and what, what brings them here, this announcement of a king? Here now, the arrival of Jesus has stirred up Jerusalem. Literally, the, the word means shaken. It's, in the Greek, it's the word we get seismic from. It's like there's a seismic shift taking place in the hearts of the people. So their questions are probably a hint of, or it could be a hint of, of skepticism. Who is this prophet from the northern precincts? What's he doing here? The crowd responds that he was the prophet of Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So there's, there's probably some conflict or tension here. Those who consider Jesus to be a prophet will be at odds with those who call for his crucifixion at the end of the book. We know that it's true. Jesus is both prophet and king. The people mostly had a political Messiah in mind, however. Right? Matthew emphasizes the spiritual reality. Jesus will suffer and die, which is the beginning of the fulfillment of redemptive history. He will triumph through suffering. Later on, the Pharisees will ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples for crying out, for calling out in this way, for, for singing to him, Psalm 118. And the chief priests and scribes became indignant at the crowd's praise, according to Matthew 21, verse 15. So the crowd that escorted Jesus into the, the city is not necessarily the same crowd that shouted for his crucifixion, but neither group appears to have a, a proper view of Jesus' purpose. This crowd wanted to overthrow Caesar. The crowd that depict, that's depicted later in the week wanted to squelch the uprising of an imposter. Jesus came to bring eternal life by suffering the penalty of our sin, but the people were seeking temporal relief. And so they misunderstood the message. They misunderstood the messenger. Jesus is no longer keeping his identity quiet. He's fully aware that the excitement of this crowd today will contrast sharply with the outrage of that other crowd five days later. But Jesus was ready to face his humiliation. The fact that, that people did not grasp all that Jesus came to accomplish is evident from his reaction as after he receives this praise that's lavished upon him according to Luke chapter 19, Jesus looked upon the city and wept over it. He weeps over the rejection that he's about to face from these same people. Now, are we not like these shallow, fickle followers of Christ? It's not difficult to follow Jesus when everyone is excited about his reign. Even though they acknowledge Jesus to be their Messiah, it would seem that they had abandoned him when he didn't meet their expectations. We can all be like that sometimes. We don't get what we want from God, and so we hold that against him. Instead of ease, we reap hardship because of our faith. And so we give it up altogether. How can we 
rightly respond. They weren't they weren't wrong to give him praise as their king. That was appropriate and right, and they should do it. But it's what they did from there that determines if their praise was genuine. It's the lack of fruit that proves that they didn't understand what they were saying. Did their praise really matter? Did it make any difference once the parade was over? And so if we don't possess a, a personal faith in Jesus, we are exactly like that crowd. Simply gathering a group to inquire what the commotion is about. And maybe you'll hear a lot of that. You'll hear a lot of references to Easter. Maybe even going to church this week. But let us be those who, who, who show our love and our faithfulness, our commitment to the King, who are... Love, loving actions for him. Right? If you've truly believed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, not only for the world, but for you personally, then you will not be content to leave him in the background of your life. You will not return to life as normal after the service. When you submit to Jesus as your king, you give him free reign over your life. And so those who declare Jesus as the Messiah must be willing to follow him as their king. Let's ask that he give us the grace to do so this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and this reminder to us of the kingly authority of our Savior. We thank you for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which reminds us of that, that we can even picture this this large crowd that's ushering him into the city out of relative obscurity and this large crowd that's following him as well, all giving him praise and honor. And Lord, we can even see ourselves in that crowd doing so. Lord, it's only by your grace and mercy that we can respond in faith and repentance that is lasting that bears fruit throughout our lives. But we don't take the credit for that as if we were better than, than those next to us who, who forgot what they just said the next day or five days later as they shouted, crucify him. We see our own fickleness in that tendency, Lord, but we recognize that your spirit is at work, drawing us to yourself, warning us, of the dangers of sin. Turning our hearts away from this world and turning them to you. Lord, we want to be subdued by our king. We want to be protected by him, preserved by him, recognizing that he alone can conquer all his and our enemies. And so, Lord, we worship, we want to respond by worshiping Christ as our king, as our prophet, as our priest, who willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice to bring us peace with you. Lord, as we reflect upon this in the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us, help us to be stirred up 
even as the people in Jerusalem were, but not, not with a shallow or a superficial or a short-lived stirring. But Lord, warmed to these things that we might continue to worship you the rest of our lives. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, My Song is Love Unknown, hymn number 326.